0: What do you think when you hear this sound? Vroom, vroom! What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Okay, imagine you're drinking a cup of tea, okay? You're sitting in your comfy armchair, you're drinking a cup of tea, all of a sudden the, tea, the cup is rattling on the saucer and you hear, vroom, vroom! What are you thinking? What are you thinking? What are just as
1: loud as jets in the sky, right? <laughs> like, what would you say is the jet
0: of the land? The race car. <laughs> it's a fucking race car. This is a movie about race cars. They're land jets and it's fucking amazing <laughs> theoretically, I guess. <laughs> should
1: do you think that we should get a writer and try to put a script together and start shooting next year? Absolutely not. No, we shoot next no, no. month.
0: <laughs> Let's start shooting right now. Look, just bring the writer onto the set. Look, you guys will figure it out. Look, we're going to get a bunch of great guys together. We're going to get a bunch of fast cars and we're just going to be we're going to be on the fucking beach in Daytona like what you know oh yeah we need a script okay
1: get one of the highest paid oscar nominated screenwriters uh that there is out there bring him to set and let him dictate the rules and fight with the director every day causing our overages to be outrageous (laughs) forcing our crew to sit on their asses for days at a time while he and the director fight over the
0: camera setups Okay, so while that's going on, okay, picture that. Okay, what a bummer. Here's what's going on with you and me. We've rented out several floors of a hotel. We're flying on cocaine out of our minds. There are so many prostitutes there, and we're in Florida on the beach. And, like, oh, no, there's trouble with the movie. I guess we have to stay here longer. Like, oh, well.
1: Let's, you know, since we're going to be doing so much cocaine... Uh, Going to be doing so much drinking. Why don't we get a gym? And I don't like this hotel's gym. So let's rent out. Let's take this storefront and build our own personal gym in there for, um say,
0: $400,000 for us to use. Got kind of to look good. What do you? You want to look like shit? Did I not? Did you not hear that we're on the beach with prostitutes? What you want to look like a fucking paunchy piece of garbage? Like, no, we need our own half million dollar gym. And I don't know why I'm doing this, but let me remind you that it's 1990, and half a million dollars is a lot of money. <laughs> Basically, nothing costs half a million dollars. <laughs> um, Days of Thunder is the first thing you expect to see in this movie robert duvall in a tractor (laughs) probably not and in fact is robert duvall the star of this movie (laughs) like i You know, what's interesting
1: is when you told me that you had watched it and I was, I had to, I had to watch it in a couple days. I was like, yeah, if I remember correctly, the second act isn't very good because in a way it's like a sequel to Top Gun. It's like a spiritual sequel to Top Gun and they're just kind of trying to profit off the success of Top Gun. And with most sequels, what you get is a good first scene that reminds everybody of what was fun about the first movie and then maybe a decent ending Um, And so that's what I was expecting with days of thunder. And that is not what I got at all. The
0: opening of the movie is not fun. It's not, it's, it's very weird. It's like, it thinks that it's like, uh, just meandering
1: to nothing. It's,
0: (laughs) it's just like it opens in, in literally in a cornfield with Robert Duvall driving a tractor and Randy Quaid runs up to him and tries to convince him to go back to being a racing car coach. I didn't know there were racing car coaches. Like, I, that was a lot of information to take in right at the beginning. And also that he's, like, the best, and he's retired, and, like, why would he come back? And you're like, I guess this is the plot of this movie? It's, like, getting Robert Duvall back on the racetrack.
1: Okay, okay. Welcome to 30 Years Later. Uh, This is the fourth episode of the show. Uh, It's the last week in June 1990, and we are talking about... Uh, One of the hotly anticipated movies of June 1990. Another movie, like Another 48 Hours, that was finished literally the week it was released.
0: (laughs) Oh my god, yes.
1: And we are talking about a spiritual sequel to Top Gun, Days of Thunder. Directed by the same director as Top Gun, uh, Sir Tony Scott. Actually, I don't know if he's a sir. Is he just a Mr. Tony Scott? I think he is. Ridley's a sir. Ridley's a sir. Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, and starring Tom Cruise, Randy Quaid, uh Robert Duvall, John C. Riley, Michael Rooker, uh Nicole Kidman, I believe in her first American role, which is a whole backstory that we'll we'll get into, and produced by none other than the legendary Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, two of the most legendary wow. Hollywood producers there's ever been, who also, if you've ever heard a story. About a crazed, coked out producer it's most likely <laughs> it's most likely
0: about Don Simpson. <laughs> I mean a couple of guys that know how to fucking live. you know what I'm saying, Ricky, like they know how to live a couple of guys who know how to make movies that go boom as well. <laughs> Yeah. Um I you know, you were saying I did not know John C. Riley was in this movie. I was very pleasantly surprised to see his name in the credits. Um, because like what how old could he have possibly been in this movie? Like twenty five or something? I think it's his third or four it might be his like fifth or sixth movie. <laughs> well, of course, because he's a fucking prodigy. I'm sure I'm sure it's probably his hundredth movie, but like I I don't know. I I guess I just don't associate him with blockbuster films of nineteen ninety. You know, it yeah. seemed like he was like really batting above his weight. Uh I mean, he was except he, for that the movie was terrible but, you know, he, other than that. and he didn't really have any lines, yeah, he just kind of but but like they had his name in the opening credits like did he used to have a bigger part or something. he was like the fourth name it's in possible. the credits, and you're right, he has like three lines, so, like why and he wasn't a big star, so like why in the world did they do that
1: so John C. riley not John C. Riley's first movie, you know whose first movie it is
0: who whose movie is it? Character actress, Margot Martindale. Is that true? First movie. Who was, who was Margot Martindale in this movie? Actually, I didn't realize she was in
1: it. He's in the background multiple times, worked on the race team. uh, But she's the one sitting on like the high chair, who's like taking, the woman sitting in the high chair, who's like taking notes. uh, Now, now, now and then. That's, that's literally it. But she She got, she was put in the background of this movie. I think she was put in the movie because she was in Lonesome Dove with Robert Duvall. And he, he knew her. Oh, wow. Um, uh, also, who, someone who was in the movie and whose part did get cut out of the movie, uh, Don Simpson, who cast himself... Oh, yes! <laughs> cast himself as a race car driver that would be a supporting character of some kind. Uh, and <laughs> he appears at the top of the movie, basically in the credits sequence, and that's the only time that he really appears uh but he apparently had a whole part that they shot multiple scenes of but his performance and like was a lot t- of lines and the, but the performance was so bad that they 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 had to cut it and there's also rumor that tony scott shot the scenes poorly intentionally <laughs>
0: But who? But like that is so fucking weird to think about. Because who else's idea could it have been that he was in the movie? Like, why fucking tank it? Like, it must have been his idea. <laughs> so then why go out of your way to make sure it's unusable, especially when you're in charge of the money for the movie? So you just wanted to waste shooting days for no reason. What a fucking maniac! He was pretty
1: power. They were both pretty powerful, right? They had a. This was their last movie with Paramount. Who they had had a oh, yeah, like right. tons of success with, but this movie they had gone so over budget. Um, I believe they went from like what was supposed to be like a thirty-five million dollar budget at a, to around a hundred. Like that's so wild. wild. That's like fucking Dick Tracy, also. Yeah. like it was like the same thing. Um, um, and and afterwards, Paramount want like wanted them to do Beverly Hills Cop three for an extra. For an extremely low budget, as well as deduct like nine million out of their fees or something like that, and they said, pay them back for
0: this movie, right? Because it was like such a fucking disaster, yeah, (laughs) it was such an epic failure that they asked them to give up money on their next movie to pay them back. (laughs) But (laughs) and instead, they, they walked.
1: This is another, uh, this is another example though of a movie that I mean, what is it, an hour and 45 minutes, an hour and 50 minutes. If this movie yeah. if this movie was ninety minutes,
0: I think it would have been bearable. Because we're saying it, the script has so many problems, and it's not at all clear what's going on. So the way the movie's set up is basically right. Like I was saying, Robert Duvall has to get lured back to being a racing coach by Randy Quaid, who is like a small time racing team owner or wants to be a racing team owner. And uh, then they hear there's like this kid that's going to be on the team. Uh, but the thing is, the kid uh, has never driven a stock car before; he's only driven indie cars which are for like, you know, Europeans that, that, so fuck that. And then it's like, okay, so this is the conflict of the movie, I guess. It's like, he's going to learn about cars and, you know, uh, Robert Duval's going to learn how to work with him. And that kind of is the movie, but only for about 30 or 40 minutes. And then it becomes a completely different movie. And then yes! it becomes a different movie again. And then it becomes a different movie again. And <laughs> it's like, with different they v- was it They just ran out of ideas. It had too many
1: ideas. With with different villains and they are unable to weave any of these other movies into oh one movie, right? Like the Nicole Kidman subplot comes and suddenly the movie is just about the Nicole Kidman subplot. Like let's use top gun as an example, right? The, the romance with Kelly McGillis and top gun is weaved into the story of the millet, of, exactly. of the flying Academy and of his relation and, and of goose dying and of Maverick being kind of a wild card. Like all those things are, plotted together and butting up against each other to make conflict whereas this movie is like he's done racing he meets nicole kidman he's done with nicole kidman he michael
0: rooker can't race anymore then he has to do the last race that's well dude okay so so like okay so we're saying tom cruise has never raced a stock car before he's got to learn from robert duvall how to race a stock car and they're gonna work together to do this okay and this does happen in the movie by literally like 15 minutes into the movie, he's the most successful stock car racer in the world. And you're like, isn't this the journey of the movie? Why is it already over? And then it's like he's he's the like number one and he's got like challengers to him. And you're like, why is this happening? How did we get all the way from zero to a hundred? And now it's like it's a completely different, it's a completely different movie. It's no, um, there's an element it feels like where the movie is scared of
1: being a cliche sports movie where he is the underdog who then has to battle the the villain. And it kind of tries to uh, subvert that or undercut it in a way, but it just limits any sort of emotional response you could have to the movie by,
0: cause it doesn't add anything by removing those cliches. It just kind of because removes like, a story. And I mean, it's like you've said about this movie to me many times, like there are just, there are no stakes. Like if your main character is a complete outsider and then he's the number one in the world, like less than half an hour into the movie, like, okay. Like I guess I don't care anymore. You know, like I, I it's not like I'm invested in watching him try to succeed. It's like, well, you're just the movie just tells you, okay, now he's the best. And it's like, well, all right, I guess I don't give a shit what happens to him from here on out. Well
1: then <laughs> this is this is like one Tom Cruise's character's name is Cole Trickle. I'm sorry that we have not said that yet. <laughs> And that's actually an homage to a real
0: a real uh NASCAR racer whose name was Dick Trickle. And was And this is so weird because so much of the movie is real racing stories, right? Yes. Like, which you would never guess. So it's like they, they have an incredible amount of reference points and knowledge about racing that are
1: thrown into this movie, yet that's all the movie has. None of them are
0: blended in a way that is coherent. They're just sort of tossed in like a fucking bad salad bar <laughs> it's like they had a trapper keeper that was like cool racing stories and they the screenwriter sat down and was like okay well i just gotta push all these together and then that's the movie i don't know right that's the movie are they like what are we bob what are we shooting
1: today and he was like we're shooting dick trickle's story <laughs> except this name is cole trickle
0: <laughs> wow um, cool how does he think this
1: shit up man but what I was going to say about the stakes of the movie is you bring up this idea that like okay so say he becomes the best within 15 minutes and then 30 minutes in he gets injured and from that injury he has to relearn to be the best again right the movie almost right. the movie almost goes there where he does get injured but then guess what he can race easily and it's fine and
0: the person the <laughs> person who And he even says that he's blind uh, he says Chris... that he lost his sight the person who he's the like, oh, he's got it back. He's got it back. Don't worry about it. The person who can't race again is the villain. So then the villain's just out of the movie. No, <laughs> well, then the villain becomes like his best friend, and then he's like doing stuff for the villain, <laughs> like like you know, help his family. And you're like, wait, wait why why are they best friends now? It's like they kind of respect each other. It, it doesn't make sense. Like I was
1: looking at Michael Rooker's character character as. Iceman in Top Gun, right? right? Sure, of course. He does not become friends with Iceman until literally the last fucking minute of the movie, right? <laughs> Iceman, Iceman says, hey, Maverick, you can be my wingman anytime. And Maverick says, bullshit, you can be mine. Literally an hour into this movie, hour, 10 minutes into this movie, Michael Rooker's like, I'm never going to race again. Will you be my best friend? And he's like, of course I'll be your best friend. I love you forever. And then they go for a
0: walk in his field. <laughs> and he keeps going back to his house to like check in on his health and stuff and there's a certain there's scenes where like he's talking to michael rooker's children and you're like wait where the fuck is he like what is going on and you're like oh oh this is i guess this is michael rooker's house we're supposed to be intimately familiar with his whole family by this point in the movie and you're like cut 45 minutes of this movie oh my god please yeah One thing I will say about their relationship is so they they become friends during this scene where they're supposed to drive. They have a big thing where they have a huge car crash and they both almost die, this injury. And then they both almost get kicked out of racing by the head of racing, who is um, Fred Thompson, which is like amazing to see him in a movie. Uh, as a Southerner, you know, as a Law & Order fan, you know, I was great. Not as, like, a person that knows his politics now. Like, in that sense, I was really don't like to see him. And also, he says some pretty racist things in his, like, one minute in the movie. Does he really? What does he say? He only has about three lines in this movie, Fred Thompson. And he's, they're all a story about japan and i actually stopped and rewound to make sure that he had actually said japs and he sure <laughs> enough did he's telling a story that is admiring of the way japanese people i forget what run a factory or something and he's like these damn japs that he'll tell you what they do <laughs> i was like I mean, it's like fucking roger sterling here like uh and why no kenny loggins why is there no sure. i know
1: hans zimmer does the score and there's a final song in the movie that I think is just over the credits that is sung by the singer of White Snake, and I think Jeff Beck does the music with
0: Hans Zimmer as well.
1: But was this wh- like
0: Hans Zimmer's first score? Isn't that isn't that, is that
1: true? It was his first big movie. There he had done a few before, okay. but and apparently Tony Scott had really wanted to work with him, but he couldn't get a studio to okay it until this movie for some reason. Um, and I no. think I think he couldn't. I think and I think it was like a last minute thing because other people dropped out or couldn't do it, but. I didn't. One of the things that is fun about Top Gun, and I hate to keep going back to this movie, but it is supposed to be a spiritual sequel to Top Gun. One of the things that is fun about Top Gun are the fucking Kenny Loggins songs. There's fucking I the awesome. Danger Zone. I mean, Dan- you know. Danger Zone, playing with the boys. It's a great scene. Those are great songs. Fucking um, uh, Berlin, Take My Breath Away, right? The Righteous yeah, that's Brothers. That's true, yeah. It's a great soundtrack. Like that... This movie has no soundtrack. There's one song. I mean, Actually, art... Tom Cruise's first race, this soul song. It's the only song that I think they use in the movie, and it's a that's that soul song that's like so glad, baby, give me some, oh love. yeah, so glad, baby like <laughs> give me give me
0: some love yeah. yeah why it's out of no like there's why? no context within the movie and they don't follow up on it at all because it's cool because it's ricky because it's cool see i think the thing you're not realizing here is this is a movie that's about fast cars uh guitar solos cool songs like good looking guys like getting in dust ups and just like fucking going for it dude And like, you know, like, like I've already said, fast cars are cool. You know, like what else? I think you're, there's a, there's not a layer of this movie below that layer. He becomes the top star. Uh, He's competing with
1: Michael Rooker. The two of them get into an accident where they fuck up their brains. Uh, While their brains are fucked up, he meets Nicole Kidman, who is the love interest. And there's a great moment where he thinks Nicole Kidman is a, is a hooker because uh, in a previous scene to celebrate his big win, the the his his team uh got him a prostitute i believe a prostitute i I would say a stripper except she makes out with him right away so i'm assuming it seems like a prostitute who is um pretends that she's a state trooper pulls them over and then is uh frisking him and uh or is patting him down and says you have a concealed weapon on you and then unzips tom cruise's pants and makes out with him yeah uh so yeah yeah um, so then, well,
0: I first, I have a couple of things to say about this. First of all, um, she is in the company of two other people who are presumably real estate troopers. <laughs> <laughs> so they are all in on this together. The police are using their public money to like bring a stripper oh, to this cool oh, race car. Oh, rider. come on. The police have to have a sense of humor too, Chris. <laughs> you got to have a little fun every now and again, you know. <laughs> It can't all be hitting protesters in the face with nightsticks. Uh Okay. So that's one thing. The second thing is n- this: that the, you're bringing up this scene in kind of a weird way, but I would just like to say, this is just what guys do at work. I mean, I can't tell you how many times my boss has gotten me a prostitute to celebrate, <laughs> like, you know, just like a good project. When you have a project that goes well, it's just, this is just normal guy stuff. And I don't know why you're making such a big deal out of it. Um, But because of that, Cruz gets confused when he meets his
1: neurosurgeon, Played by Nicole Kidman, who apparently, according to IMDb, wanted to study neurosurgery for the role, and the producers were like,
0: "Don't." <laughs> the producers like, "You don't have to do that." So she's like, she's a big character in the movie later, and it turns into this thing where uh, she's always talking about having to rush uh, Michael Rooker back to the hospital to make sure his brain's getting looked at um and I, as a floridian I, you know, I am a floridian and i'm a proud floridian but i just kept having to remind myself she's a, a neurosurgeon in florida <laughs> like not even in miami or orlando or tampa or tallahassee she's in like f- like fucking like on the beach she's in daytona like, mm-hmm. she keeps saying like we have to get you back to fort lauderdale for this and you're like do we can we send him to like fucking new york or something <laughs> like why are, <laughs> why do we have to airlift him 10 minutes to the fucking florida neurosurgery center like the story behind Nicole
1: Kidman's casting is that Tom Cruise handpicked her after seeing the movie Deadcom. Clearly,
0: like one of those, she's beautiful. I want to meet her. <laughs> Bring her to yeah, me. Exactly. And it just really worked out. And those two kids had a really happy life together. And it's just cute when you see something like that, you know, where it just, it's just like the stars aligned. It's really great to see. So she comes in to speak to Tom Cruise about
1: his, uh, are you his, declining his to charm. comment on
0: the relationship between Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman? Like, isn't that one of the major no, just, things from this movie? I I
1: feared that I had strayed too far away from the original setup, and so maybe we can get back to the relationship. But I just because want to I get mean, to the this point is where- like this
0: is the birth of their yeah. relationship as him. Exactly what you're talking about, him picking her to be in the movie. Yes. Um, and then they were, he, what, forced her to marry him? I don't know. They signed some kind of crazy contract. Like, I don't know the actual details.
1: Wasn't there that crazy story where... <clears throat> isn't there that crazy story where he took her to some sort of Scientology field that was just, yeah. Yeah. like, with Didn't slaves? They, like, <laughs> out
0: her name in flowers or something? Like, the slaves had done this? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that story. So, um, she comes into the room, and he doesn't believe
1: that she is his neurosurgeon. She, th- he thinks that she is another prostitute and she keeps trying to be like, uh, check him out, but she keeps accidentally using a innu- like light innuendo. You know, uh, we're going to have like stuff like we're going to have to check you out. And he's like, Oh, are you? Uh-huh. And all the guys are laughing because Cruz isn't getting it. And then Cruz grabs her hand and puts it on his dick. And is like, isn't this what you're looking for? And to be quite honest, she's a very good sport about it.
0: <laughs> I mean, you could also say that she's like a victim of sexual assault and doesn't quite know in the workplace, I might add, and just is trying her best to get out of the situation. Uh, it is I'm gonna... one of those things that does not hold up to 2020. <laughs> definitely, definitely, I- definitely. I'm going to go out on a limb here
1: and say Days of Thunder and the men who made it do not know what sexual assault
0: is. <laughs> <laughs> What, you mean like when abroad is like, oh no? I mean, they did rent out a hotel, four floors yeah. of a hotel, in order to be able to have hookers. Yeah, and I just got to say, like, what are you doing with all? I mean, how many rooms do you need for? I mean, what are they? Are are the hookers like be, being staged in different areas? Are they like in the on deck circle and there's different rooms for them? Yeah, what do like, you? You could doing? just do it with like one floor, certainly, certainly with one floor.
1: What do you need? I mean, you can't go a month or two while you're working on a big budget movie. You need to have
0: four floors of hookers. <laughs> well, Every night missing is this is like the point. The point of making a big budget movie is to be able to have four floors of prostitutes. Like that is That's that is true. why this movie was made was so that that situation could happen. And the rest of it was incidental. Um, but speaking about Nicole Kidman, actually, this is one thing I wanted to say about this is, um, it reminded me of a simpler time in America when Australian people were allowed to be Australian (laughs) these days, an Australian person in a big budget movie has to pretend to be American. But in 1990 it was, it was actually cool to be from Australia. We're just at the tail end of the uh, like Australian cinema boom in America. The uh, here's what I'll say. The end of Yahoo Sirius' career is in the future at this point. So like it's, you could still coast on being Australian and I personally thought it was great to see, you know? I mean, how these days, when do you hear Nicole Kidman do an Australian accent? Never, never in a million fucking years. And there's no reason her character in Big Little Lies couldn't be Australian or something, right? But, like, just no, none of that. Keep it a secret, you dirty fucking Australian. Nobody wants to hear your voice. It's wrong. The thing about this movie is, like, it's five movies, and they all suck, so, like, you know. You know, the hack screenwriter book that I actually think
1: kind of, like, follows, like, works if someone's a good writer and follows it, you know, save the cat, you know, this book. Oh yeah. 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 So in the, in the beat sheet for save the cat from page 30 to page 55, it's called fun and games. And it's where you have set your movie up properly and everything is sort of like, you have this period of time where the movie can have fun with everything that it's set up until it gets to things having to start being resolved. Right. Uh, It's the second act of the movie, but this movie it's fun and games are not tied to anything like suddenly they're suddenly they're racing wheelchairs against each other suddenly they're racing rental cars against each other suddenly he's falling in love with Nicole Kidman and teaching her how he drives with sugar packets on her leg right it yeah it's all of these scenes that have no bearing on anything that came before or come
0: after and and I mean, just you brought up the wheelchair race scene, which I had totally forgotten. Um, So it's Tom Cruise and Michael Rooker in there. It's after this big accident. They're leaving the hospital room and they end up having a, a wheelchair race through the halls of the hospital. And this is maybe my favorite scene in the whole movie because of the fact that the movie treats it as seriously as any of the car races with like no level of irony at all. I don't think it's just like the music kicks in and the shots when we're cutting the two of them, like racing and pushing each other. And I think we're meant to take it extremely seriously. (laughs) And when they like get kind of shocked out of it by somebody like a hospital person um we're supposed to be like oh man i can't believe i was so wrapped up in the drama of that wheelchair race (laughs) which like guess what i was not I was not at all talladega nights is a parody of this movie and it came
1: out 16 years later (laughs) but that had to have been such an in-joke for those guys who made that movie because this movie wasn't successful nobody cared about it and they did like honestly they do a pretty to the t parody of Days of Thunder. There are a number of scenes from Days of Thunder in Talladega Night. So
0: fucking weird. And it's amazing because And John C. Riley is also one of the stars.
1: Yeah. The it movie. clearly was like Adam McKay or Will ferrell caught Days of Thunder on TNT one afternoon and they're like, let's just <laughs> remake th- this movie is stupid. Let's remake this movie. And
0: they were like, okay. Like, I can't believe this is real. Like, we should definitely just fucking do this, but us. <laughs>
1: One of the scenes that I, it's such a Tony Scott moment. And I do, I do genuinely like Tony Scott specifically around this period of time. And I think the movies have a slick polish to them and they're fun to look at. uh, If he has a good script, this is just a terrible script. Um, But a a real Tony Scott moment is the scene where Nicole Kidman and Cruz have been hanging out a little bit and then she has to check him out in um, the doctor's office. And it's like moodily lit with blues and shades and shadows and you're just like is, who turned what lights did they turn on in this doctor's <laughs> office? It makes Isn't no it sense. A medical examination like what the fuck is going on? But I kind of I, it reminds me of in true romance when um, Clarence and, um, and Alabama they've slept together for the for the first time and she confesses to him that she's a prostitute but she is sitting like outside the window on a (laughs) billboard like she's sitting at uh, uh, like his apartment happens to be connected to a billboard and she's just sitting (laughs) on the billboard on a couch and then he goes out. it's just like this incredibly cinematic uh (laughs) way to stage something that has absolutely no basis in reality
0: and (laughs) like i mean this is just how real people act ricky i don't know what your problem is like well you know you're talking about the parts of the movie that are like really cinematic and uh you know kind of weirdly heightened and beautiful to look at i will say so i i really like you're talking about like the opening montages and stuff the movie opens with this like montage of racing basically after the corners and stuff,
1: racism and job. racism there's like five yeah there's lots, lots flags. of confederate
0: <laughs> yeah, right exactly but like i honestly personally really love those opening scenes because it it had it feels real i don't know if it's real or not i don't know if they're all but they did shoot this movie at the day at the daytona 500 part of it they actually shot it like during the daytona 500 they were like had their cars going behind the real cars somehow during the actual race and so maybe this is where this is from i i, I don't know but um It's something about it. It just, it looks like I'm, I felt like I was seeing real people from 1990 and like the kind of people you don't really see in movies, which are like weird Southerners. I don't know if it's because we know
1: the backstory of how excessive the people were making the movie, that the movie feels like this, but doesn't the movie also have the feeling for me, it does. The movie has a feeling of, Oh, this is when people in Hollywood, once they reach a certain amount of success, could be a piece of shit and every now and then like a movie every every now and then it like bleeds into the cracks of a movie just enough where you can where like the veil of cinema and fiction sort of doesn't hold it and there's just something kind of like egotistical narcissistic and faulty about about the what that what they've made does that make sense
0: no i totally agree with you i mean it's just it's it's the fact that you you're watching a movie that isn't compelling and doesn't make any sense. And you just start thinking to yourself, like, what is fucking going on here? And the answer is that a bunch of fucking egotistical rich people threw their weight around and got to make this movie. And then it's so weird because then it becomes part of our shared experience. I mean, I can remember being a child and seeing so many ads for this movie and having these cups be the cups I got at McDonald's. And like, you know, it's something like, you're like, oh, I guess Days of Thunder is a thing I should be interested in when it's just because of some like old drug addicts wanted to get a bunch of money. It's so weird that society works like that. You know,
1: isn't there, isn't there like a sense when you're watching this movie of when you're watching this movie and you're thinking about the screenplay, did you have multiple moments where you're like, God damn it, I should write
0: movies. This is crazy. How bad this is. Like no one was paying attention. (laughs) Well, because you just think of when you're trying to write something and the amount you beat yourself up about like I'm not really like this isn't really singing and like what am I really saying and what's the point of this? Like I should just quit. And then you see a movie like this and you're like, Oh, I guess none of that matters. <laughs> like I guess you can still get like a huge movie with movie stars as long as you like do coke with the right people. It doesn't really matter if your script is good or not. <laughs> like he's an awesome I winning... will say is funny. I will say it's funny because there's in textually, the movie is kind of about structural inequality. <laughs> like the first thing, Tom Cruise and his first scene, they're like, well, why do you want to race stock cars? And he's like, well, in the formula one, you can't win if you don't have a good car and you can't get a good car if your name's not Andretti. So like, I have to do something else. And I was like, wow, that's actually really cutting. Like that's, I feel like this is the best movie about structural inequality I've ever seen. That was like very plainly said, but then you know, also that goes away also.
1: Speaking of Mario Andretti, do you know what Don Simpson's character's name was?
0: Oh, didn't you say it was Aldo, what, Fandretti?
1: (laughs) Aldo Benedetti. (laughs) Nice,
0: nice. Very subtle. I love it.
1: But this movie, I mean, Robert Towne is an Oscar-winning screenwriter. This movie structurally doesn't work as a screenplay. And then line for line, it doesn't work. Nicole Kidman's monologue, where she's yelling at Tom Cruise for being... For wanting to race again and how he shouldn't race again is so bad and she does like she always has done her entire career she works wonders with bad lines but it's one of those monologues where he's trying to grant her attention and she keeps turning to him to say one more thing she'll walk away and then she'll turn back around and she'll tell him one more thing and she'll say something like control is something no one has you infantile egomaniac <laughs> like
0: that's oh my other favorite thing about her character is that she, I, I think literally she was 22 or 23 years old. And again, she's supposed to be an extremely talented brain surgeon. Right. Not old <laughs> enough to be a surgeon. She would not even have be in medical school. She might be in her first year of medical school. <laughs> like
1: no one asks, and no one asks questions about that. No.
0: Why? Why? Uh, who gives a shit? Why are you, uh, you, you, you don't want a hot girl in your movie. Okay, fine. All right.
1: Should we
2: listen to the Cisco deeper? The film works in bits and pieces more than an entire picture. Even with those reservations, however, I still recommend it. I recommend it, too. Uh, I feel that auto racing is an extremely boring sport visually. Because, it's because you have one three shot. possible shots. Yeah. One shot is a pack of cars all going at once and right. you don't know what's happening. Right. The other shot is two cars jockeying for position. Right. The third shot is a close-up of the a driver. driver. And that's all they have to show. In this movie, it seemed as if Cruz's car spent most of the movie being scraped against the wall by another car. Right. I have watched a little stock car racing on television. I don't think that they spend all of their time trying to drive each other into the walls. But they do in this film right. and it's based on the strategy. Another thing that was a little bit predictable about this film is it has the same structure. The same structure as Top Gun, The Color of Money, and Cocktail. Uh, Cruz is always the natively talented kid who's undisciplined. Right. There's always the older mentor. There's always the taller, wiser, more mature woman who brings him uh, into her emotional sphere and helps him to grow up emotionally. There's always the first bad guy, who later becomes his friend, and the second bad guy, who's the real bad guy. And then apart from that, there's always the piece of equipment, whether it's a cocktail shaker, a pool (laughs) cue, a jet airplane, or a car. These four movies can make a nice little mat set.
0: Uh, I cannot believe that I just heard Siskel and Ebert recommend this movie. Like, it's fucking wild to me. I mean, I guess I forgot about The Color of Money and Cocktail. I mean, that was actually a really smart thing that Ebert said about them all being exactly structured the same, and they all revolve around a piece of equipment. And even that thing where the first bad guy becomes his friend, and then there's the real bad guy, I guess I haven't watched enough Tom Cruise movies. I love The Color of Money, personally huge because you're such a fucking cool guy well and i guess is so did that movie come out before this movie because yeah the story i read about how the 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 the, this movie actually came to exist was yeah paul newman took tom cruise out to race cars because that's what paul newman likes to do and then tom cruise was like oh this is cool i should make a car racing movie
1: my other problem with this movie and i guess siskel was kind of talking about this is that cruise is dull in it is that I am a huge I'm a huge Tom Cruise fan. I love Tom. Me Cru- too. I love
0: Tom Cruise. I love, I
1: love Tom. I love my Cruise. favorite and maybe my favorite moment of this movie is in the hospital before he sexually assaults Nicole Kidman when the when the guys come in and he has to pretend to be a normal man, being casual with other men and he's just like <laughs> can't like Tom Cruise just cannot do that and it's my favorite thing to watch where they're like hey like all the guys come in and they're like Hey, how are you? Good to see you. And he's like, Hey, 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 hi. Good to see you. All right, the
0: guys. <laughs> he's wearing a he's wearing a white dress shirt buttoned all the way up. It's like, like so it's like it's like really when like the seams
1: of Tom's alien skin start to appear is when he has to like perform as someone casual in a social situation where you're just sort of like, hey, fellows,
0: (laughs) so great. Ha, -ha. Uh, yeah, your wife likes to cook.
1: One thing that we should also mention is that Tony Scott met his wife on the set of this movie, Donna, Um, and the way that he met her was
0: because Don Simpson was dating her. Oh my god! And in the context of Don Simpson, like what does dating mean? <laughs> like, well, what? It,
1: he cast her and then he started dating her. So, yeah, okay. uh,
0: clearly, like how many days a week do you think he is spending with her? Because he's got, don't forget, he's got four floors of prostitutes at the same time. Right. So how much can time can he possibly be spending with this woman that he has quote unquote dating Simpson also kept
1: a closet full of Donna Karan dresses to offer the at- attractive women his assistants found on the beach.
0: Yeah, so you got a picture Don Simpson. He's got a closet or a whole hotel room full of Donna Karen dresses. He's got an assistant who, this is how it's written. It's like the attractive women his assistant would see on the beach. Okay, this is not an accident. Like he has a, an assistant whose job it is to go to the beach and find hot yep. women to then offer expensive <laughs> outfits. Too. And Donna Karen is such a weird choice. I mean, 1990 is like a big time for Donna Karen, but it's it's kind of like business wear a little bit. Like, not 100%, but like basically. So it's like, why in the fucking world is this what he's giving to people? It's disgusting. It's a just, dis- it's, it's, ugh. anyway. Uh, he
1: also held private parties with friends like rapper Tone Loke. <laughs> and they threw a special welcome party for the crew at a local nightclub with minimal food and drink and no music. but but plenty of hookers they flew in, most of whom they limited to a roped-off VIP area with themselves and Tom Cruise.
0: I mean, what can I say? It's like I was saying at the very top, Ricky, these are some guys that know how to live. You know what I'm saying? And those (laughs) those were the days of thunder. I mean, in all honesty, those were the days of thunder.
1: (laughs) Unconnected. Days of thunder and nights of
0: lightning. Um... Do you want to talk about the ending of the movie? yeah, sure. I mean, what is there to talk about? like he wins good guy, wins the big race with his fast car. yeah, that's it. And then they run and freeze frame on the two of them running happily
1: together duval and uh and and I will say this, I do agree with Siskel and Niebuhr about Duval giving a great performance, but oh, he's great, it's, yeah, but he's Robert fucking Duval, like that's what he does it's it's almost he's almost underrated because you just don't expect anything
0: else. Right? Like, I mean, you could, you know, I mean, I know this is like a dumb thing to say, but you could just watch him, you know, order food at McDonald's and it would be riveting. You know what I mean? Right. So
1: he was in Widows. I forgot he was alive. And and I saw him
0: in Widows. He's
1: in that movie and he clearly doesn't know his lines. He's too old. He doesn't remember (laughs) his lines. He's so old. But he is still impossible to take your eyes off of. Right. Like, no, he's fantastic. He's fantastic. Watching him drop a line and then try to figure it out on camera, you're like, what is the character doing? He's so magnetic. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> You're like, "Oh, this poor old man, like he's having a rough time, but like no, that's the actor, not the character, yeah, like, uh, so I
1: mean, even praising Duval for his performance in this movie, it, it almost feels lack unnecessary like of of course he's
0: good yeah he's good in anything of course he's good he's good he's good in everything he's good in anything and if you know he's definitely doing a lot more than this movie deserves definitely definitely i mean he just seems like a real person you know i completely accepted the reality where he was this character like i, I you know yeah it was great so the end of the movie is Cruz has to race against the new villain who we barely know at all played by carrie ells, ells? completely unmotivated villain yeah out carrie of ells. nowhere so introduced character they introduce Carrie always like about halfway through the movie. Maybe they say like, we got you a backup driver and he just smiles and goes, hello. And then maybe 20 minutes later that it's like, oh, I started a new racing team with that guy. And you just see him, like, smiling in the background. And they're like, oh, you fucking idiot. Why do you have two racing teams? That's stupid. And then by the end of the movie, this is the main villain? He hasn't even fucking done anything. I guess he kind of, like, bumps his car at one point and tries to cause an accident. But, I mean, I heard rubbing is racing. So, like, that just seemed like good old-fashioned racing to me. I didn't, I didn't buy him as the villain. I didn't understand his motivation. And I didn't understand why he... Dislike Tom Cruise, except that he just wanted to win the race. That's what everybody wants. Everybody wants to win the race. I didn't see why particularly he was bad, you know? And it makes it so there are no stakes in the final race. Yeah. It's just like, Oh, he's racing against the other racers in this race. You know I mean? Yes. That's it, he's
1: you know? racing against the <laughs> other racers. That's it. That's all that it is. It's just a race. It's not like, it's not like they've added a ticking clock on him of some kind, right? Cause he is unhealthy. No. There is this idea that if he gets into another accident, he could die, but they don't even really put him in peril in some way where it feels like he no, could get all. into a really bad accident and die, or give him like a like a, a light seizure or some sort of like you know he can't see because of an anu- like whatever right Something right, right. To he, like, hits to his head
0: disc- and now he can't see you very well right yeah
1: but it's just a
0: race and we have seen <laughs> multiple races before this. <laughs> And it's like, and they tell you that this race is important, kind of? I mean, it's like he's racing for uh, Michael Rooker, right, is the thing. Which, again, it's like he's such good friends with him that he's going to race for him to save his racing team so that he can, like, pay the bills on his houses or something? I don't know. I, I, unclear. I don't even remember any good reaction shots from Michael Rooker, you know?
1: Like, even a sports movie where the person is like live on television in the final race you need multiple reaction shots from people across the country who've been a part of the story right especially the one who is they're doing it for his benefit you can't you only all you get is nicole kidman and robert duvall standing next to each other that's it for the entire race where is Rooker where is his family where is Tom Cruise's family where oh is God. anybody to I'm add to this Fred, Dalton,
0: Fred Thompson you know like where's A- Fred Thompson
1: anybody who was even Fred Thompson in this movie he shows up he for was two Mr. Scenes.
0: NASCAR
1: he shows he up for two in scenes charge in charge of all racing and then he's gone
0: yeah. It's fucking ridiculous. And and for those two scenes, you're supposed to think he's the most important person in the whole world and everything. He is in charge of everything. And then, yeah, he disappears for the rest of the movie after that. So what do you
1: think was the most, uh,
0: what was your favorite moment of the movie? Oh, you know, Ricky, I love when them cars go fast. When you know the cars go
1: vroom. <laughs>
0: i love it when i hear a cool ass guitar solo and i see a big fast car don't you think that that... don't you think that should have been the like theme
1: song of the movie that they played at the beginning like it's danger zone but it should have been like (laughs) when the cars go vroom 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 you know you're in a room um what do you think is the most uh 90s thing about this movie because as we say in every episode 30 years later, 30 years ago is going to only be 90s movies for the next 10 years. So everything is going to be what is the most 90s thing. So what is the most 90s thing about this movie for you?
0: Well, so maybe this is just it's starting to show what my ideas of what something being 90s means. But I, I, one of my things I think in a big movie like this that being 90s means is they instead of being connected to like a shorthand movie version of what real life is like which i think is what a rock movie will do now basically it's like you see the rock do the things you see people do in action movies and that means he's a regular guy i think this movie because of coming out when it came out in 1990 it's trying to actually be connected to actual real life in a way that like you know, a movie these days would just not even fucking bother with at all. Like if we're talking about like the opening montages, we're talking about the rental car scene where they have like weird shitty rental cars, but not like cartoony rental cars. They just have like normal people's cars. You know, I I think that even uh, expending any effort trying to acknowledge the existence of the real world, it's gone. It went out of fashion sometime around 1999. Who gives a shit?
1: Yeah, I agree with that uh for me the most 90s moment of the movie is the bloat uh and i feel like we saw this with another 48 hours kind of saw this with dick tracy as well which is this sort of like never ending second act where it was just like they clearly had oh God. they clearly hadn't worked it out i mean most most movies now with the exception of marvel movies right because those are just the nerds just want to sit in their own filth for as long as possible <laughs> while they watch that shit uh The like most movies that are made now are very tight. They're intentionally like get in, get out. You know, you only have one story to tell movies. It doesn't even feel like they're really given. They're really given a B story that much anymore. Love, love stories have been cut out of movies prime for the, for the most part, I think. Um, But this is so below, seemingly so bloated, even for a movie under two hours where, You're just waiting for it to get to the thing that's important because the movie itself doesn't know what is important in the story.
0: Right. Right. Cause it's like, we're saying, it's the story of Tom Cruise and Robert Duvall and it's the story of Tom Cruise and Michael Rooker. And it's the story of Tom Cruise and Carrie Elway's and Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and Robert Duvall and Randy Quaid and Michael Rooker and like a battle against a brain disease. <laughs> and it's like, they're all presented basically equally <laughs> and you're like, well, what, which of these is the movie? You know, it reminds me of a um, there's a deleted scene in Boogie Nights
1: where, um, It's an amazing deleted scene. And you're like, it's so good that you're like, how could anyone have cut this from their fucking movie? And it's the sequence where Becky Barnett calls Dirk and is like, my husband's going to kill me. He's beating me up. I need you to come save me. And Dirk is immediately like, I'm going to get there. And he digs around for his vial of cocaine and John C. Riley's like, where are you going? Where are you going? And Dirk's like, I got to go kick some fucking ass, man. I got to go kick some ass. And Tusk is playing in the background the whole time. And then it cuts to Becky Barnett and her husband fucking full on punches her dead in the nose, busts her nose open. And then he storms away from her and she grabs a, a pan and she runs over and starts beating him over the head with a pan. Meanwhile, Dirk is driving to get to her and he's fucking snorting Coke, trying to light a cigarette and fixing his hair while he's driving. And Tusk is still playing and he changes the song. and He puts on a Devo song and he looks in the mirror and he's fixing his hair. and He goes, yeah, you look good. You ready to go kick some fucking ass? And then he, hit, he drives straight into a telephone pole, smashes the car, never goes pick, never goes to pick up Becky who is waiting for him in a diner alone And Dirk just goes back to the house with the busted up car and they start talking about how they're going to fix up the car. It's extremely crazy and funny and well-made of course. And you're like, how could you delete this scene from this movie? And if you listen to the commentary of the scene, Paul Thomas Anderson, it's like, it just, it wasn't the focus of the movie. The focus of the movie is Dirk and Becky's story. While great, is too far off from what we need to focus on within this movie. It takes us too far away from someone who we're we're trying to get to the point with. And I felt like that with this movie all the time, where they just didn't know what the point with Tom Cruise's character was. So they just
0: tangents all over the place. I don't understand what his arc is in this movie. I don't necessarily think he has one, because it's like going from an outsider to the number one racer, I get 30 minutes of the movie, being damage and having to relearn how to do racing 10 minutes of the movie uh being the number one guy and having to defend yourself against challengers i guess that's like the rest of the movie but like only kind of because that only there's only really like one race that takes place in that that time period and it's like way later so it's just you're like what why what am i invested in what is he trying to accomplish why is he trying to accomplish it i don't i don't know that the movie answers those questions at all what um what do you think this
1: movie has it's it's 30 years old what do you think this movie's grown out of
0: well we definitely talked about this earlier but i think it's the treatment of women in this movie yeah. they're like multiple instances of sexual assault yeah. and like casually treating women as sex objects every single second they're on screen yes. it's like hard to watch and it's hard to watch especially because it makes you remember that like they asked, this is what it was like. This was totally cool and fine. Nothing about this is wrong for 1990.
1: That's what they were putting on screen. Like behind yeah. screen, yeah. it must have been awful. Just awful. I think about that yeah, all just... the time when it comes to actresses in the in the 90s. And I don't mean that in a like, oh, I think about that all the time. But right. I'm always yeah, thinking no. about the hardships of women in the world. But oftentimes when I see—I mean,
0: I am—but like if if that sounds like a joke to you, you know.
1: But oftentimes when I see, you know, there was that interview just around the time that Me Too was blowing up, and someone was interviewing Sharon Stone, and uh, the interviewer, I think he was from CBS, was like, "Did you have any experience with anything like this in your career?" And she goes, "Me? (laughs) 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 Me? Oh, look at me!" And just like maniacally laughs and doesn't answer the question. And it's like, you have no idea the kind of stuff that she probably still can't talk about because a lot of the people are still incredibly powerful
0: in the industry. Well, because you were just like there was nothing wrong with doing things like this. Everybody understood the deal is that like, I'm going to try to fuck these broads and like, you know, they're going to try to not get fucked, but like in the end I'm going to fuck them. That was why people, that's just the game. That was why people got into the industry. If this is the way we see things happen in the movie that like, One of the first women with a speaking line is a prostitute who grabs Tom Cruise's dick and then like I guess they go on and fuck. He doesn't he doesn't go like oh no, I can't. Like they just fucking start making out and they cut, you know. Well, before they
1: cut, he does a very Tom Cruise thing, which is he smiles those big pearly whites and goes (laughs) you 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 guys (laughs) unbelievable.
0: Uh what do you think, think that this movie grew out of, Ricky? Do you have something else?
1: I don't I don't have anything else. I think I think the exact same thing, you know? Because those the, the moments specifically with the moment specifically with Nicole Kidman where he puts her hand on his penis is so far out of bounds for what is appropriate, and yet the movie thinks it's absolutely appropriate and just runs with yeah. it.
0: Yeah. Um it doesn't have a problem with it at all, no. And he does seem to genuinely be putting her hand on his dick also. Like, you know, I mean, it's in frame pretty well, you know. I
1: will say this about Days of Thunder. I do like watching Tony Scott's camera. I think he, I think he shoots beautifully, especially at this time before he started doing a lot of cutting and using a lot of cameras on set and just sort of like constantly zooming in and moving around. I, I, I I like him at this period of time. I like watching Tom Cruise, though. I think this is maybe his dullest performance. Um, And I I like watching Robert Duvall. Those
0: things are great. It's just that the movie is bloated and
1: extremely boring.
0: I will say one of the things this movie does really well, I thought is like, it's hard to, as hard as it is to shoot driving, it's hard to act driving because basically all anybody does is they just move their hand back and forth and like, look straight ahead and the first scene of race car driving is that and i was like oh right this is gonna be so fucking boring i'm just gonna watch somebody move their hand like three inches back and forth left and right for the entire movie but they actually like tom cruise does a really good job even carrie always does a good job michael rooker of like they are doing other things than that which i i thought was great to see i mean especially tom cruise who's just kind of there's a lot of scenes where he's kind of like pissed off in the racing in the race car in the driver's seat and just the way he does little things like there's a scene where he like pulls down the netting uh that's next to his head and he just like pops it out so mad and it it seems very self-assured and i was like that's fucking cool like this is cool i'm I'm kind of buying him as a race car driver i i I liked stuff like that you know (laughs)
1: Before we go, there were a few movies that came out the month of June 1990 that we didn't have time to talk about because we have private lives and we don't just want to watch movies from 1990 and talk for two hours about them and then edit those things into an hour. It's very time consuming. We could not do three more. But those three movies uh, were um, RoboCop 2, um, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, and Ghost Dad.
0: Um, Yes, all of these ghost dad is the one I'm saddest we didn't do because it would just be so interesting to look back at like a very different version of Bill Cosby. We can do. Do you want to do a
1: bonus ghost dad episode, Chris?
0: No, no, I have a family. I cannot do this, Ricky. I loved how very either. generously you were saying "we" during that whole thing when it was me. It was me. Like you know, I mean, I feel like for you, RoboCop 2 is the movie that you're the saddest about
1: robocop 2 is a little sad about because i do i love robocop and i x and i recently watched both of them i think just when the quarantine started i watched both of them and the second one is such a fascinating sequel whereas the first one feels like this very verhovian way of riding the line between satire of the reagan years and also kind of Still being able to pleasure people who are Reaganites in a way who can't recognize the satire. Robocop 2 just dives right in and becomes a full on like vengeance movie where Robocop has to be anytime he becomes a human, he fails as a cop. But I don't think the movie recognizes what that means.
0: That like humans are bad and everyone should just be a mindless law robot and murder all criminals. Like,
1: or or I'm not giving the movie enough credit and it and it knew what it was saying and it was trying to say that like cops are inherently auto- authoritarian and there's no way and there's no room for uh human relationships and human emotions and the gray area of what it means to be to
0: to be kind I think now you're giving the movie too much credit I think that like in the 80s like and then, you know into 1990 like the way a lot of sequels worked was it was like What in retrospect, what was the most marketable thing about the movie? And let's just make a whole movie that's that. So like and this is why you have movies where their sequels are completely different from the movie. I mean, the like Rambo Two obviously could not be less like Rambo. You know, it's even more than you're saying about Robocop. Where oh yeah, Rambo Two of the first movie, you know, questioning these things become just like, oh no, it was cool when Rambo killed people. So like Yeah, let's just do that. Thrown out of the window to become straight fascist. Exactly right. So it's RoboCop Um, 2 also. It's just like people like when RoboCop shoots people. So like we want more of that. Also Tom Noonan is in it. And I'm a huge
1: Tom Noonan fan. Um, And Gremlins 2, the new batch.
0: Do you have any thoughts on Gremlins 2, the new batch? Well, gremlins do the new match is kind of a funny one because it's basically like UHF, but for kids, where it's like it's just a bunch of sketches about cable TV, but it's like the gremlins are doing it. And there's a bunch of them that are kind of funny or sweet to the extent that you're like, are these gremlins bad? Like, well, there's they the just gremlin... seem to be running a pretty functional TV network. Like, it seems fine.
1: The, in, there's the intellectual gremlin who's running a kind of uh, talk, like a, a a book talk show almost, right? <laughs> And he ends up up singing New York, New York at one point. (laughs) And they do the whole sequence where there's like a female gremlin that he he falls for as well.
0: Yeah, it's a very strange movie. I mean, I think both Gremlins movies are kind of like in... They aren't what you remember. Like when you watch Gremlins 1, it's like it's a weird fairy tale where there's always like steam coming out of the ground. And like the shots are in slow motion and there's voiceover and nothing really connects in a logical way. It's kind of all dream logic. And you're like, is this what gremlins is? (laughs) This is not how I remember gremlins at all. And gremlins two is kind of the same way. It's like working girl meets UHF with monsters.
1: I wonder it's Joe Dante, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
1: Did he do the second one? Yeah, he did the second one. I mean, Joe Dante was pretty cool. He did The Burbs. He did Gremlins. I thought The Burbs was a great... I, I still love yeah, The Burbs. it's a movie,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, no,
1: it's good, yeah. But yeah, those are the movies that uh, came out. And next month, we have... Um, the movies that we're going to be talking about for the month of July are uh, Die Hard 2. Next month, we have uh, some other movies, so... <laughs> Die Hard 2, that. The Adventures of Ford Fairlane with Andrew Dice Clay. Ghost, which was, I believe, the highest grossing movie of 1990. Uh, It made over $500 million that year. Uh, Arachnophobia, the The Freshman, and Problem
0: Child. Ooh. Yeah. I was a big fan of Problem Child when I was a kid. I really was. I honestly was. Loved it. Loved Problem Child. I love problem child the the, the problem with the
1: problem with problem child for us is going to be is that it opened the same week as presumed innocent and presumed innocent <laughs> made m- much, mucho money. Presumed innocent made like $200 million.
0: Really? Wow. Versus, pro- versus problem child adults, 70. You know? dude, These are yeah, summer those- movies. <laughs> <laughs> fucking presume like innocent summer... is a summer movie. Like that's amazing. Yeah, the summer movie. And then movie it won is... handily. Like
1: that's crazy. And Ghost was a summer movie. Ghost would be a Netflix movie now.
0: <laughs> oh my god. I have a romance about a ghost. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah, exactly. It'd be a Netflix movie at best. At best. It's like a fucking lifetime movie.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, all right. I think we did it. All right. I think we did it. Good to good see job, you. Good job, everybody. Peace yeah, out.
1: Good to see you.